Um, ladies and gentlemen, uh, apologies for a slight fit of coughing there. Welcome to this evening's event, China Power Politics in the Asian Age, uh, an event held, as I'm sure you know, under the banner of the Cambridge Festival of Ideas. And ideas are plenty, I suspect, we're going to have over the next hour and a half. Of course, in deference to the Chinese Politburo, this should really be an event that lasts three and a half hours, and we have, of course, locked the doors, uh, but uh, <laughs> we've decided in the interests of uh, cultural accommodation to keep it a more manageable 90-minute uh, length. I will very briefly introduce your distinguished panel to you, and then we'll get started with the discussion. Um, on my uh, left-hand side, we have um, one of Cambridge's longest-standing and, of course, most distinguished scholars of China, Professor Hans van der Ven, the author of many books, most recently China at War, Triumph and Tragedy, which is a study of the several wars that racked China during the mid-20th century, but also someone who's written extensively on modern Chinese history beyond that particular subject. And of course, also present in the media, most recently I think in the Observer newspaper on the occasion of the 70th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of uh, China. Uh, again, something of relevance, uh, I think one should say, to this evening's panel. Uh, we'll hear from him shortly. Uh, on my immediate left is Professor Eva Pills, uh, Professor of Law at the Dixon Poon School at King's College in London, where she teaches human rights, public law, and law and society relating to China. And like Hans, she both has a distinctive, uh, distinguished range of academic publications, including China's Human Rights Lawyers, Advocacy and Resistance, published in 2014, and Human Rights in China, a Social Practice, practice in the Shadows of Authoritarianism, published in 2018. And she's affiliated to a variety of other distinguished law schools uh, around the globe and a Legal Action Committee member of the Global Legal Action Network. We have then uh, on my right, uh, Dr. Agnes Chung, who is currently a visiting scholar at the Department of Political and International Studies, aka POLIS, here at Cambridge. She has an international career, both academically and uh, in terms of her legal expertise, having first studied in the UK and then having obtained her doctorate in international law from Hong Kong University, uh, winning a prize, in fact, for that um, thesis. She, <coughs> excuse me. She's also a qualified solicitor in Hong Kong, has worked for the United Nations for many years, uh, res resident at one point in Bangkok, and speaks fluent Mandarin and Cantonese, but what she says is only conversational Thai, so if anyone in the audience wants to test that out later on, I'm sure we will have plenty of opportunities to do that. And hot foot on the way from the station, or at least in a, a taxi, I think, we have um, Dr. Pablo Dave of SOAS, who is an expert on Central Asia. Kazakhstan, Ethnicity, Language and Power is the book that she published in 2007. She'll be, I think, addressing the question of China's new Silk Road policies. And when she slips in uh, on the uh, side of the panel here, uh, that's who that is. Uh, my name's Rana Mitter. I am director of the University China Centre at a place called the University of Oxford. And in case you're wondering why the committee has seen fit to place me in charge of the chairing this evening, I should confess that there was an earlier time in my life when I retained one or two qualifications in Chinese from the University of Cambridge. So I hope that allows me to be in this room without having rotten vegetables thrown at me. I'm going to ask each of our speakers to give us a few minutes of thoughts on the areas under their own expertise which perhaps relate most to this big question of 
What does China mean for the rest of us, particularly in the Western world? Where is it going? And how can we engage with it? Uh, so we'll ask everyone to give a few minutes of comment in their own area. And then we'll continue with a bit of interaction between the panel to try and see where we might find points of connection and comparison. And then turn over to, I'm sure, the most important part of the afternoon, which is to get questions, comments, and perhaps reports of your own experience from everyone here. I should add, by the way, just a reminder that this evening's event is being recorded by the Cambridge Festival of, uh, of Ideas. So I think we will start, perhaps logically enough, with history. And Hans, I wonder if you would lead us off this evening. OK. Um, let me check, too, whether people can understand me. Can you hear me? Yeah? OK, that's very good. So I think Rana has given me, uh, as is his wont, a difficult assignment, which is to bring all of Chinese history to bear on China's contemporary problems. And he has repeatedly uh, emailed and said to us, do this in about five minutes. Um, that is going to be a difficult task. But I propose to do this by talking about three important commemor commemorations this year. Uh, that took place this year in China. And the question that has been in the back of my mind as I have thought about these commemorations and in fact participated in one of them is what do these commemorations tell us about the kinds of constraints there might be on absolutist power in China today? And I'm of course talking about Xi Jinping who goes around uh, suggesting that he has uh, absolutist power. But let me, talk first, uh, let me first introduce these three uh, commemorations, and then I will talk a little bit about what I think each of them tells us. And the first of these commemorations happened in May, uh, in May uh, this year, and it commemorated the uh, 100th anniversary, the centenary, of the very famous May 4th movement that broke out in, obviously, May 1919, in China in protest against the decision of the peacemakers in Paris to hand the German concession at Qingdao or Jiaozhou Bay to Japan. And that triggered a wave of student protest across China that then deepened into a, I think our fourth speaker is here, which is good news, um, that had deepened into market strikes and business strikes uh, against the Beijing government, against traditional culture, against imperialism, and importantly, for science and democracy. Now, given that the Chinese Communist Party traces, and this is where history becomes relevant straight away, its origins to the May 4th movement, Xi Jinping had to say something. He talked about the sacrifice of students, of course, not about democracy. The second commemoration was the 70th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic. It was accompanied by a military parade in Beijing. Just get the mic a little closer. A little closer, yeah. It was accompanied by a military parade in Beijing, even larger than the one four years ago to mark the 70th anniversary of the end of China's war with Japan. Um, and as I think at that anniversary, Rana was commentating live. Uh, <laughs> Uh, on the Chinese television, uh, trying to interpret which foreigner was whom for a Chinese audience. And he did fantastically well, of course. Um, now, Xi Jinping uh, this year once more stressed the enormous sacrifices that the Chinese people 
made in all kinds of ways to contribute to China's pursuit of wealth and power, the message being that the current population must do the same if China is to realize the China dream in 2049, when the PRC, if all goes well, will mark its 100th birthday. Now, the third commemoration was one that dare not speak its name, at least not in the PRC. And that is the, is the 30th commemoration of the Tiananmen Massacre of 1989. It was commemorated, of course, in Hong Kong, where it contributed to the escalation of the protest movement against the extradition treaty. So we have three significant commemorations. And I think in China itself, too, the Tiananmen Massacre will have been remembered by many people and often observed in silence including by not going to it. So what can we learn from these? And I think four things. The first is the lesson that Xi Jinping draws from Chinese history. And that is a revival of a Maoist style of leadership, not the Maoist style of leadership of the Cultural Revolution when Mao tore down the Chinese Communist Party, but the party that Mao Zedong built in the 1940s uh, in Yan'an, uh, the communist uh, Jerusalem of the time, creating a highly centralized, highly disciplined, centered around one person type party. And it is, I think Xi Jinping's belief that that is the instrument that is now necessary to take China through its troubles, including corruption. And it's the instrument that will deliver the future of the realization of the China dream. So I think he is reading history in that way. That's where he is coming from. I think the second lesson I draw from this is the significance of history itself, sort of beyond Xi Jinping. The commemorations indicate the importance of history in debate today in China and its potential for disruption. Until about two decades ago, in China, history was dead. It was everything that went before the founding of the Chinese Communist Party, or even before 1949, was dismissed as feudal. But now China has rediscovered its own history. And that is demonstrated, for instance, in all kinds of television series about the great Qianlong Emperor, um, which all students seem to know. Uh, and so history is back, including its disruptive potential. And I'll just give you one example of that. During the May 4th commemorations this year at Peking University, there were these uh, discussions, scholarly meetings, and one scholar there made, made, discussed the history of China's reform, uh, Deng Xiaoping's reforms. And he argued that the reforms had not begun with Deng Xiaoping. They had begun under his predecessor, Hua Guofeng, because, he argued, then power was divided between Deng Xiaoping taking care of the economy, Hua running the party, and uh, Ye Jianying running the military. The, 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 the speech he made was entitled The Advantages of Weak Leadership. Now, how provocative is that? <coughs> Did Xi Jinping hear about this? Well, maybe. He's a famous scholar. Um, but clearly, history is being debated. And we can see that in the Chinese students now debating the history and the justifiability of the whole reform process. You now have student organizations, Marxism studies organi societies, 
that are debating uh, the justifiability of the reforms. They are negating the whole Deng Xiaoping reform movement. They are calling for rethinking what is happening in China from a genuinely Marxist perspective. So history is back, and not in a simplistic way. Then, of course, what I'm driving at is the significance of student demonstrations. The May 4th movement of 1919 became a model for student protest that has coursed through modern Chinese history. Student protests occurred in the 1920s in several times, in the 1930s, the 1940s, again at the end of the Cultural Revolution in the 1970s, uh, in the 1980s, the Tiananmen demonstration, and then, of course, then in Hong Kong. And these students represent something like a moral conscience of Chinese history. And this is why I think one reason is that Chinese Communist leaders today uh, is, is concerned about them because they are well aware that the 50 or so students who founded their party in 1921 in the aftermath of the May 4th movement <coughs> were in charge of their country only 30 years later. Uh, that it, so there is, there is that. A third thing is the rise of the Sinophone. And I think this is very Hong Kong is important too. The Hong Kong protests are but one indication that it is no longer Beijing that gets to define what it means to be Chinese. Chinese-speaking communities elsewhere, not just Hong Kong, but also Taipei, Singapore, Malaysia, the USA and Europe, and even Bangkok, so we hear, uh, have a say too. And in Hong Kong now, we have the rather curious situation of a Beijing communists backing tycoon capitalism, which is not really capitalism, it's tycoonomics, uh, which is rather strange, against protesters who not only reject Beijing, but, more, but just as importantly, also reject the identities that are being articulated. They are talking about, or they're drawing energy from revitalized Cantonese legacies, including Christianity. So the frustration for people like me who have learned Mandarin Chinese is that not, when we now go to Hong Kong, we cannot use that language because people don't want to use it. Uh, and I don't know Cantonese, and I doubt I'm going to learn it anytime soon. So my conclusion of all this is that it is not that helpful to think of Xi Jinping as a dictator with absolutist power. He might come across like that at, on Twitter, I know, and it is the case that Xi Jinping has recentralized power and that the CCP is back in charge. It didn't used to be for a long time. But there are many other sources of power, ranging from student protests to history, the rise of the Sinophone. And we haven't even begun to talk about religion, which is all over China. And then there is finally this. Really significant change in China has often followed the death of the ruler. In modern times, as in the past. So as the saying goes, where there is death, there is hope. Thank you. Many thanks, Hans, for starting us off on the path of uh, history, uh, which I think is going to be taking us to some very interesting thoughts about the present and the, the future. I'll turn straight away, if I may, to Eva to take us into the field of law. Thank you so much. Um, I hope you can hear me all right. And um, yes, I will try to take you in the field, uh, to the field of law. 
<laughs> or more specifically, human rights. Um, that's the angle from which um, uh, I'm working. And human rights norms, of course, are meant to protect <coughs> against abusers globally. They are universal norms. But um, the abusers themselves always have a time and place. And in my work, I have for um, many years focused on <coughs> abuses on human rights uh, issues in China, in particular, uh, trying to understand the situation of people who defend human rights. So uh, we just heard quite a lot about uh, the perspective of Xi Jinping and the party leadership. And I suppose that the perspective that I've uh, engaged with most um, has been bottom up and very much um, one of challenges to uh, the current party state system. Uh, in that work, um, talking especially to human rights lawyers, I have of course heard a lot about uh, the cases and they worked on the victims they worked wi with. But um, in particular, and this is something I, I want to share um, uh, uh, today, uh, I've heard a lot about how they themselves have been victimized, um, uh, how the system has retaliated against them, uh, sometimes uh, uh, by uh, endangering their professional lives, but quite frequently, unfortunately, also by detaining them, abducting, abducting them, uh, torturing them, forcibly drugging them, and so on. And the retaliation has affected, and that perhaps has been especially heartbreaking uh, uh, for those uh, affected, also their families. So, for example, the child of a human rights lawyer might not be allowed to go to school or not be allowed uh, to leave the country because of the, the identity of their parent. So, in one sense, uh, this is quite a bleak picture. But in another, and I think that connects to what um, we just heard from Hans, um, the fact that these people were able to operate at all, that they had some human rights to rely on, some norms of the domestic legal system to uh, invoke, uh, is very much due to the reforms of mm -hmm. the 1980s, which, as I think, um, uh, Hans, you, you, you hinted, brought a degree of separation of functions, if not powers. And um, that work, um, from the perspective of the human rights lawyers, they would sometimes say, well, we sort of take the party seriously. We take um, them by their word, even if they didn't uh, mean it seriously. Uh, in Chinese, that would be the idea of uh, Against that background, I am very concerned about the development of the most recent years, the years under Xi Jinping, because um, what we have seen in that um, phase is that at least in ambition, if not mm. in reality, mm. I think the system has turned uh, much more uh, sort of authoritarian, much more assertive about uh, the advantages of authoritarian governance. And some would say, at least in ambition, it has become, again, neo-totalitarian. And that, of course, has been very bad news for human rights defenders. Um, uh, they have suffered. Um, uh, perhaps the, the most uh, 
concerning and, and worrying uh, uh, place and example of um, abuses um, at the moment in China. Uh, however, is uh, what is happening in the westernmost regions, in particular the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, where um, uh, people, Chinese citizens, predominantly belonging to Muslim minorities, um, have been affected, for example, by uh, incarceration, mass incarceration, an estimated one million or so. And uh, even more people. Um, uh, are suffering under increasingly tight forms of surveillance. Uh, all the while, my interlocutors, um, civil society more widely, is being crushed. So, although in a way the, the, the developments have been so bleak, uh, my sense is that um, China at the international level uh, is actually um, getting uh, less criticism than it used to, for example, following June 4th. Um, mm. And uh, indeed, it is also uh, quite frequently getting uh, endorsement and support. I would cite as example a letter written in uh, July this year by 37 countries um, uh, uh, endorsing uh, China's um, policies in Xinjiang as uh, an example of a successful war on terror. And yes, of course, um, uh, China does take, did take the phrase of war on terror from the United States, from the West, where the war on terror has <coughs> been, in many senses, in many ways, a human rights disaster. Um, I think that um, what the wider problem is really that um, China's rising power is a contributing factor to a weakening of the norms and institutions uh, that have uh, supported international, that have supported human rights at the international mm. level, I should say. Um, and also, <coughs> China's rising power in many ways means that we are more connected with it. Uh, to use a Xi Jinping phrase, um, I suppose that would be ni zhong you wo zhong you ni, sort of we, uh, uh, you are, um, we are in your midst and, and you are in our midst. Um, and that has brought many advantages um, to many of us, I'm sure uh, also here in this room, certainly myself included, but it has also led to uh, novel forms of dependence and um, I think that um, uh, those have meant that uh, we have become more likely to be at risk of complicity with some of China's human rights abusers, be it because, say, we buy products that have been made, made using forced labor in China, uh, or be it because uh, we take support um, uh, as a civil society organization um, or a university from China, uh, or because we are willing to collude in censorship uh, at uh, China's request. Um, this, of course, was the case um, in 2017, uh, also um, at Cambridge University Press. I'm glad to say that CUP uh, reversed that policy after somebody acted as whistleblower. Um, but more widely, the problem, I think, continues to persist. And I think that 
what this means for us is that we need to consider uh, how we can come up with a more systematic way of responding to the challenges of China's influence. Uh, I think that one place to start, one, one, one point to start from my perspective would be to uh, call for more transparency about the terms of our engagement. Thanks very much. Thank you, Eva, for some very clear and very uh, useful points. Um, if I may turn now to, um, well, perhaps we'll turn to the department next, is that right? Or does the uh, department, sorry, we, we introduced you briefly beforehand and your expertise on Central Asia, and I think you're going to speak a little bit about China's foreign relations, particularly in its immediate um, uh, uh, neighboring areas, so to speak. Okay, and how much time do I have? Um, <laughs> We're, we're basically, we're, we're between about eight and ten minutes is what we're right. going to say. I'll give you an indication at eight. Okay. Just give me at six minutes, and then I will wind up in eight minutes. Then I okay, you could have, you could have ten. <laughs> you're generous. All right. Uh, thank you very much. I'm sorry for being late. I, I, uh, no excuses. It's just that I couldn't make it on time. Um, so I will... Uh, I have been doing work on uh, Russia-China relations and effects on Central Asia and Belt and Road strategies, Silk Road, and, and so forth, and also some research on the Russian Far, far East. Uh, so in the few, in the some eight to ten minutes that I have, let me just try to give you a brief uh, overview of, uh, of the relationship. Uh, <clears throat> there has been increasing emphasis on Russia uh, and China's uh, growing strategic relationship. So very often when I attend conferences in, in Russia or Central Asia, I've, see, I've witnessed scholars from China and scholars from Russia after conferences when they informally discuss and they start talking about, you know, is it still a strategic partnership or is it on the verge of becoming some kind of alliance? Are there some alliance-like features in this relationship? Uh, because there is also some military cooperation, uh, joint military exercises. So, so there's much greater goodwill and, and friendship. Uh, the, these kind of uh, topics are discussed in, in a, a much uh, quite at interpersonal level uh, in a way that uh, if one looks at some 20 years ago, then Russia-China relationship was um, completely different, the Sino-Soviet relationship and Russia-China relationship. So, so I want to focus on how this has come about uh, where is it going? Uh, what is it that brings the two countries together? And uh, what, is, uh, what kind of conclusions can we draw from this? Obviously, I will touch upon some of these points. So I will just leave many of the loose ends probably and answer them during question-answer sessions. Um, sometime last year in Vladivostok, there was a joint military exercise in which Xi Jinping and Putin met and uh, both leaders get along extremely well and it has been reported that they have met at least some 25 to 29 times in bi bilateral meeting, multilateral meetings and SCO and other kind of uh, uh, fora. So this time when they met in Vladivostok, there was much greater, this personal bond between them was emphasized and Xi Jinping prepared the Chinese dumplings and showed Putin how to make it, and Putin made the Russian blini. And so there was this dumpling blini diplomacy, which was obviously, uh, you know, played to the, the audience. And uh, so, you know, it's behind the symbolism, what, what can we say about this? 
observers, <coughs> observers of Sino-Russian relationship have, <coughs> over the last seven, eight years, tended to describe this relationship as an axis of convenience, uh, as something guided by short-term instrumental interests. Uh, some even have described this as a, uh, as a policy whereby China, for the time being, has been courting Russia, and Russia doesn't have many suitors. So, uh, but there isn't, uh, it may not emerge end in a kind of marriage or alliance. There's one other uh, metaphor which has been used that both countries share, you know, they, they share a Chinese metaphor uh, that they have a shared bed, but they have, they harbor different dreams. Uh, and uh, recently the relationship has taken increasingly asymmetrical turn with China's global rise and uh, its increasing prominence in the international arena and Russia being reduced to, uh, is no longer a major superpower, but reduced, uh, it's uncertain what Russia's role is. I mean, I wouldn't say, you know, it has become <coughs> a middle level powers. It's even, it's the uncertainty and unpredictability about Russia also gives it a certain leverage. Uh, so, uh, so talking about this, uh, the uh, relationship between Russia and China, the strategic partnership, we find that uh, many, of course, uh, uh, there is an agreement that the strategic partnership between the two countries has uh, particularly taken this close turn after, from, from about 2013-2014, following Russia's uh, intervention in Ukraine, takeover of Crimea, hmm. and increasing alienation from the West. Uh, and this has, and, and Russia has started pivoting more and more towards East. So even uh, in Russian foreign policy from early 2000s, there was this strand, uh, there was this dimension of Russia's pivot to the East, which was emphasized uh, when Evgeny Primakov was hmm. the foreign minister. He was a Middle East specialist somebody who claimed to know, I mean, somebody who knew Asia very well. Uh, and this was in the, during the early phase of Putin's uh, Putin presidency. Of course, recently, this pivot to East has been often uh, described as Russia's pivot towards China, and how Russia is also trying to uh, counteract that, uh, <coughs> that uh, uh, projection. So, uh, so the point I want to emphasize here is that the pivot to East it's, it's not simply a, a, an instrumental uh, or uh, um, emphasis in Russian foreign policy because Russia has run out of friends uh, in the West or because of the alienation from the West. It was an important dimension of Russia's foreign policy. And the Russian foreign policy makers in the early 2000s also uh, emphasized Russia's Eurasian identity, its Euro-Atlanticist uh, engagement, as well as its, uh, its Asia-Pacific uh, dimension. So Russia as, a, as both European as well as an Asia-Pacific power because, uh, and, and, and this was also a time when Russia in the first uh, decade in the 2000s was trying to engage much more actively with the West. Uh, so it was proposing much greater partnership with NATO, partnership with EU, partnership with other Western states and also uh, also talking uh, about uh, this, promoting the idea of a of a greater Europe in which Russia would be included. So Russia wasn't <coughs> the pivot to uh, East meant that Russia is not simply trying to say that somehow Europe should be widened to include uh, Russia, 
but that Russia itself has a Eurasian and uh, uh, an Asian dimension, and uh, it should be, and, and somehow the greater Europe idea is, is something that is included within its Eurasian framework. So there, there was that emphasis, that difference in emphasis. Again, I mean, I would just fast forward and say that uh, the idea of this kind of greater Europe vision did not realize many other uh, reason, uh, processes, factors led to further rift between Europe uh, and Russia, for which Russia blames the uh, US, multi, uh, US unilateralism, US action in Iraq, and the US and EU have a different story to tell about, uh, about this. Uh, but then coming forward to 2013 and Crimea and also Xi Jinping coming to power and Chinese foreign policy under him globalizing, taking on a much greater role. Uh, this is uh, in, uh, when, when Xi Jinping uh, announced the Belt and Road, One Belt, One Road, which later on became Belt and Road Initiative, Russia was initially, uh, Russia's response was guarded, but then very quickly Putin said that he welcomed the initiative as chance for <coughs> Russia's infrastructural investment, particularly for lifting the Russian Far East out of its isolation and integrating that within the broader Asia-Pacific region. That's when, uh, and prior to that, Putin had also announced hosting uh, the Asia-Pacific Forum in Vladivostok. And he was also, there was also this language, U.S. also had a pivot to East under, uh, when Hillary, Hillary Clinton was the... Uh, hmm. Secretary of State. So there was this... Uh, so, so again, uh, the point I'm emphasizing here is that this pivot to East for Russia uh, was also a pivot trying to find a meeting ground with the U.S through Alaska and trying to formulate a common foreign policy in the Asia-Pacific region. And then gradually, with uh, Belt and Road Initiative, with the uh, developments in Crimea, the sanctions on Russia, and, and further rift between, uh, between the West and Russia, we find that Russia becomes more and more focused uh, on its, uh, developing its relationship with Asia. Uh, thank you. So two minutes. So. So over, and again, uh, Russia and China have been cooperating already over the last 20 years in regional, uh, many regional structures, such as the establishment of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, where initially it seemed that Russia was a junior partner, it was China's game. Then Russia also staged what I see as uh, Russia emphasized its position by lobbying for expansion of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization to include India and Pakistan. India was initially indifferent because Pakistan had already applied, but Russia brokered an arrangement whereby both countries were simultaneously admitted in 2017. And this has also allowed China to uh, represent itself as a Eurasian power. So China has also been using this uh, Eurasian, uh, has been emphasizing Eurasian dimension uh, through Silk Road, through its association with Central Asia. And Russia already has a Eurasian uh, kind of uh, uh, this, uh, aspect, uh, dimension to its uh, foreign policy. The both countries uh, disagree on what Eurasia means. Then also among Russian foreign policy, uh, 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 in the Russian foreign policy discourse, there's much greater emphasis on the idea of a greater Eurasia. So when Russia was talking about the great, uh, about greater Europe, they were asking about uh, this idea from, from Lisbon to Vladivostok as Greater Europe. But then that idea kind of disappeared. It didn't materialize. Uh, 
So then the talk was from Shanghai to St. Petersburg. Now, the greater Eurasia is Shanghai from St. Petersburg. Then subsequently, it has been described as from Shanghai to Murmansk in Arctic, because in the Arctic also there's greater cooperation uh, between states. I realize I'm running out of time. I've probably already taken some time. I'll just mention two sentences and stop. Uh, there, there is uh, uh, the, the greater uh, the Eurasian partnership uh, and, and the convergence between the two systems, between Russia and China, despite profound asymmet growing asymmetries in their power and international influence, one is both, country, uh, both states have continued to support, uh, have, have unified uh, in promoting a certain anti-liberal counter-hegemonic agenda to the West, emphasizing conservative traditional values, values of community, questioning this kind of emphasis on human rights and individual freedom emphasizing state sovereignty, security, uh, so forth. So that's a very important dimension. And, and finally, uh, on number of international issues, Syria, on uh, their, their positions converge. On Crimea, Kosovo, they have either you know, uh, China or Russia. Ch China has abstained itself in many of these, uh, uh, these fora. So there is a considerable multilateral solidarity that both states have, uh, have emphasized. And, and I see this particular partnership as not something so short-lived or instrumental, but it's, it's something that is expanding further to also bring in countries, support of countries such as India and Turkey and Iran and other states which are, which are promoting either their own version of democracy, strong leadership, populist democracy, or are uh, promoting a certain kind of authoritarian Thank you. Thanks so much. Barbara, thank you very much for a very comprehensive look at foreign affairs there. And again, turning our attention to a part of the world more generally, Eurasia and Central Asia, that we perhaps don't think about as much as we should. I think there's also going to be some geography, but also some law uh, in what our next speaker has to say. Agnes, could we turn over to you? Okay, so I'll speak about I'll speak about Hong Kong and um, the South China Sea. And uh, if you allow me, I will um, sort of um, uh, talk about um, Just keep the relationship between um, China's expansion of power and, uh, in my view, a collapse of the international rule of law. And I will look specifically at the cases of Hong Kong and the latest developments in uh, maritime law um, in the South China Sea. Um, I'll cover three points. Uh, first, I'll talk about how China's expansion of power in all aspects of domestic life and internationally since 2012 has been characterized by a, uh, a gradual overreaching of China's dominance and power that has happened gradually over time. And eventually, uh, that overreach has been normalized to the point where we actually don't know at what point China had begun its overreach. Um, second, I will talk about how this encroachment of power by China is rendering international rules-based regime ineffective. And third, I will ask what can or should be done uh, about this. Um, so uh, on my first point, uh, China's gradual encroachment of power. Since 2012, when uh, Xi Jinping took power, Xi's been single-minded in uh, centralizing power back to the party and removing opponents uh, that struck Xi's path. Um, this extension and reinforcement of control on the mainland is also being systematically uh, applied to all its territory, including Hong Kong. 
and expanding further afield to the South China Sea. In the South China Sea, China's strategy on the South China Sea is a textbook example of this gradual creep. Um, China has crossed <coughs> territorial sea boundaries in plain sight of the international community, but has carried out in a way that, um, that no one's noticed until it was too late. Um, in the South China Sea, numerous states, um, China, the Philippines, Vietnam, Malaysia, Taiwan, and Brunei have overlapping claims, uh, which has uh, led to the ongoing disputes and confrontations. Um, China claims pretty much all of the South China Sea, based on its argument that it has historic claim, uh, as laid out by its infamous nine-dash line. The Philippines brought uh, several claims against China, uh, heard by the Permanent Court of Arbitration in 2016. Um, China controversially did not take part in the proceedings, and the case was decided uh, with China in absentia. The court declared China's historic claim over the Philippines' exclusive economic zone uh, does not have basis in UNCLOS, the United Nations uh, Convention of, uh, on the Law of the Sea, which is the main treaty that governs uh, the, uh, the world seas. Uh, however, since the South China uh, Sea arbitration ruling, uh, China has turned its back on the ruling, and so has the Philippines, uh, due to a change in administration. And the Philippines has decided to enter into a joint development project with China to explore for oil and gas in the Philippines' EEZ. China continues to assert its power, all the more in the face of uh, less interested US in the region. Uh, for example, Chinese uh, Coast Guard vessels patrol areas claimed by other states and intimidate vessels and rigs <coughs> belonging to other countries. These operations um, undermine their sovereignty and uh, patrol enough, other countries might ex eventually accept China's de facto control. Meanwhile, China has engaged in ongoing island building activities, construction of military structures, uh, as well as fishing activities, um, all in breach of uh, the South China Sea arbitration ruling. Similarly in Hong Kong, since Sea took power, uh, there's been a gradual encroachment on uh, the rights and freedoms of the Hong Kong people. Um, here are just a few examples of the gradual reduction of the rights and freedoms in recent years. Uh, the abduction of the Causeway Bay booksellers to the PRC. Elected legislators were barred from taking office in uh, the Legislative Council. The prosecution of Occupy leaders uh, under obscure colonial legislation. The extradition bill, now withdrawn, but if had passed, would have allowed the lawful transfer of Hong Kong persons to the mainland to be subjected to their judicial system. The growth of a police state in Hong Kong. These protests have escalated, um, but on the other side, the police have stepped up uh, offensive, violent, disproportionate tactics. And recently, the anti-mask <coughs> uh, created by the chief executive using emergency powers and bypassing the legislature. The ongoing protests uh, are in many ways a reaction uh, of the Hong Kong people resisting China's expansive encroachment. Uh, the protesters' demands are no more than what was promised to them in the Sino-British Joint Declaration and the Basic Law of Hong Kong. The risk is that if their demands are not met <coughs> and Hong Kong continues on its current trajectory, this will normalize the current democratic deficit in Hong Kong. So my second point is the threats to the international rules-based regime and the rule of law. 
This encroachment by China is rendering the international rules-based regime ineffective and in Hong Kong undermining the rule of law. In the South China Sea, China has blatantly dis disregarded a binding ruling of the Permanent Court of Arbitration. And furthermore, China's intimidation and assertion of Chinese power is a threat to the rule of law. Uh, the ASEAN-China Code of Conduct in the South China Sea between China and the 10 nations ASEAN aims to be finalized as a treaty in 2021, which would govern the management of the South China Sea and be a means to avoid disputes uh, between South China Sea states. There have been reports that China will use its bargaining power to obtain what it wants. China prefers vague provisions to allow its expansive nine-dash line. China wants to ban military ex exercises with countries outside of the code, including the US. And finally, China will resist any provisions that prevent reclamation and the militarization of the South China Sea. All these things subvert ONCLOS, and the code needs to be careful that it does not infringe upon third-party states' freedom of navigation, which is within their rights under UNCLOS. The code of conduct, if it goes the way China wants, will formalize China's hegemony in the South China Sea, <coughs> which takes the form of China behaving that rules can be applied to others but do not apply to it. In Hong Kong, similarly, China's behavior in relation to Hong Kong threatens the international legal order. China's behavior in relation to Hong Kong over the past few months seriously undermines the Joint Declaration, which is a binding international treaty lodged with the UN. China says that the Joint Declaration no longer applies, which is nonsense because um, the international legal regime is made up of these treaties. They are a source of law, and disregard of the source of law undermines the system to which it belongs. The recent NBA and Apple cases are examples of how China's reaction to the protests in Hong Kong exports censorship internationally and again undermining the rule of law. In the NBA case, a single tweet by an NBA manager in sympathy of the Hong Kong protests led to the NBA effectively being boycotted in China. Meanwhile, Apple withdrew the Hong Kong Map Live app after pressure from China who said that the Hong Kong protesters were using the app to attack the police. Apple joins a long list of international companies ranging from Cathay Pacific, BNP Paribas, the Marriott, Delta Airlines, Zara and Versace that have backpacked on, on perceived slights to the Chinese government. In the process of practicing self-censorship or curbing free speech for the purpose of securing their economic opportunity with China, corporations have become external vehicles of the Chinese government in, in interfering with human rights, including the expression of individuals' political convictions, and free speech. Finally, what can or should the world do about all this? By turning its back on rules-based regimes, China is undermining Western values, rules, and standards. On the South China Sea, the world should not let China keep doing whatever it wants to do without being challenged. Governments need to speak out and remind China that engagement based on the rules regime of the South China Sea is beneficial to <coughs> stability in the region. On Hong Kong, while China has continued to push a narrative that the turmoil in Hong Kong is the result of foreign forces plotting to undermine China, this should not prevent the international community from speaking out on Hong Kong. The US is taking the lead in passing the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act, and um, the, the UK has spoken out a little but could do more. International attention does help. It reminds China that the world is watching and has an interest in the fate of Hong Kong. All this raises the question of whether China can be a responsible international stakeholder and the leading nation of the 21st century. 
It is possible that China can be a leading nation of the 21st century, as the US has increasingly stepped away from global leadership, especially in the most vital issue of our time, uh, climate change. China could assume an important role. If it does so, working with the international rules-based order, this will be beneficial not just to China, but to us all. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much indeed, Agnes. And trust trained lawyer who wanted to stick exactly to time. That was beautifully uh, put forward as a, a case to the, uh, the audience here. <coughs> it's a very bad thing for the chair of a session to steal the microphone to make a point of his own. Uh, so that's exactly what I'm going to do for just one moment. I'm not going to take 10 minutes, uh, but I did want to add just one particular thought to what our panel here have given us this evening, because this is a festival of ideas. And I see a lot of ideas running through the particular presentations that our speakers have given us. One uh, from Hans, I think, the idea that history and the way that the Chinese view their own history and which bits they look and don't look at is increasingly important. From our two lawyers, Eva and Agnes, the importance of norms and rules and trying to work out what and what it isn't legitimate for us in the West to ask China to do and where we need to uh, speak out. And in Bhavna's case, looking at a reordering of regional and global order in all sorts of ways that are maybe not obvious when you're sitting in Cambridge or London or in Washington, but are of vital importance to parts of the world where very millions, many millions of people and very large amounts of the world's economic and security activity are going on and are going to increase. And I want to add just one factor to that, which I think may help to add another idea to the discussion as we, we move it on. That's the word technology, because I think if there's one other area in which China is not just changing its own country, but changing the world, it is the speed and ambition with which it is both setting technological challenges and offering challenges to the rest of us. The one that I'm thinking of most obviously, and it's been in the news in this country over the last year, is the question of 5G provision. Uh, the Huawei company, of course, is very central to that. But actually, the issue, in a sense, is a wider one, not just whether this country is going to take up the uh, option of a Chinese company providing its 5G, and we may discuss that with all of you here later on. But actually, a much more wide-ranging possibility, which is still not discussed enough, whether it's good or bad is another question, but I think it's on the way, the possibility that actually a very large part of the world's tech ecology, its communications, its 5G internet capacity in South America, in Africa, in large parts of the Middle East, maybe even in India, a country which hasn't always been that friendly with, with China, uh, with Southeast Asia. In other words, much of the world except for Western Europe, North America, Australasia, and Japan may be powered, may be underpinned by a Chinese technological ecology, which once it started, would be difficult to move away from. That's a very profound decision. It's one that I think deserves some discussion. On other issues, climate change, the ability of societies to move from carrying cash in their pocket to carrying a phone through which they pay for pretty much everything, and certainly that's related to the 5G issue. The ability of the world to generate um, very, very high uh, levels of power generation through new high voltage technologies. All of these are areas where, like it or not, China is in the lead or making the weather. And I think being aware of that factor as it affects all the others is something that all of us should bear in mind, even if we haven't thought about it all that much before. I'm gonna take a few minutes to ask our panel just to 
illuminate us briefly on some of the issues that they raise before we throw the floor open here and have, I hope, a very lively question and answer session with you, our audience, here um, this evening. And I want to um, start perhaps by turning to, to Agnes and throw to you a line which I've seen in a variety of places, including some of the press in, in, in Hong Kong, which I think is proving, in a sense, more powerful and therefore more disturbing than some of us might wish. And that's this. They say, well, look, just heard what you said. And you're saying banning face masks is a bad thing. But then France bans wearing the burqa in public. And people are being told that they are not allowed to speak up in favor of Hong Kong independence. But nine people were just sent to jail in Catalonia for advocating independence there. And is the Western or the liberal world really in a position to be telling China, which has been in our own eyes, and Chinese eyes, quite restrained. Nobody's died yet in Hong Kong. There's still civil society. There's still courts. There's still a process of, uh, of law. When the rest of the so-called liberal world is actually not really setting us a particularly illuminating or shining example. I think that's, uh, I mean, all, uh, yeah, sure, I mean, call it liberal or, you know, China and China's, China's own way of um, wanting to, um, to, to govern and um, they, they always throw that uh, sort of the other Asian, uh, uh, the, the Western rhetoric that differs from China. But um, I think that um, what's really dangerous <coughs> about that is that, um, well, as I mentioned, you know, China's not following by its own rules. China had signed up to the joint declaration. Uh, was uh, Actually, China had sent uh, a big team of uh, uh, draftsmen to actually uh, to, to draft up the, the Sino-British joint declaration. And, um, and very much, uh, uh, that, uh, much of that has also been reflected in Hong Kong's constitution. And, uh, and really, China has, all China has to be doing is to be uh, following its own rules. So you know, the, the anti-mask law, which was passed recently, uh, was ran through um, the legislative count, was ran, ran through using emergency powers. British governments would never try and ram through legislation. In <laughs> <laughs> it just wouldn't happen here. No, no I don't agree like the similarities are quite awful, actually. But um, anyway, uh, so yeah, and, uh, and, and that's uh, completely um, contrary to um, the, 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 the constitution and, uh, <coughs> and what was promised by China in the Sino-British Joint Declaration. Thanks for that, Agnes. I wonder if that leads naturally to a point to, to bring back to you, um, Eva, because all of us as Western liberals can lecture China and other countries until the cows come home about how we are disturbed by things that are going on there. But maybe the persuasive way, as you've indicated in your talk, is to think of ways within the existing domestic legal, political, and social culture to make a convincing argument that actually it is for China to stand up to its own standards rather than ours. Is that a convincing argument when we think about the areas of human rights that, that you have addressed? Well, thank you so much. Um, could I just um, start my reply by sort of going back to your, your previous question and saying, you know, of course liberal democracies are in trouble in many parts of the world. And I think that um, recognizing that being critical, let's say, of uh, the decision SAS in France of the European Court of Human Rights um, that uh, sustained, that upheld the Burqa ban, uh, the so-called Burqa ban, uh, is, is, is perfectly in order. It is in no way inconsistent with also criticizing uh, what is going on uh, in China. 
I think that um, the question that you put to me of whether um, there is something I'm interpreting your question a little bit too you are a aggressive. I, I am a little bit too perhaps aggressive and confrontational, or somehow too Western, in starting by sort of um, in starting with human rights standards. Well, I I must say that um, uh, from where I stand, uh, the Chinese system and Chinese culture today. Um, actually have very importantly engaged with the human rights norms and principles that uh, we're also concerned about here. And uh, asking what um, uh, is, would be more congenial to Chinese society, I think, kind of begs the question of um, how we should understand that in huge and complex society. From, from where I stand, um, I see that um, there are plenty of people within Chinese society and indeed the Sinophones communities um, that uh, are uh, deeply interested in supporting liberal norms such as human rights norms. And uh, I think that uh, I would take my cue from them. That's also what I've done in my work, trying to understand their perspective, their expectations towards uh, uh, the, the Chinese government and their hopes for political change in China. So from that perspective, you see, I don't think that um, there is uh, actually anything particularly Western about um, raising rights-based uh, criticisms. Uh, towards uh, sort of about, about abuses that um, happen in China. Um, as long as uh, we remain aware of the need uh, to be concerned about uh, these abuses globally and not only with regard mm. to, to one particular country. Bhada, you talked about the growing confluence between China and Russia in particular and the areas uh, uh, geographically that that surround them. Uh, is there a sense at all in which there may be a sort of values convergence as well as a sort of military convergence perhaps happening between the two? These are two of the most prominent authoritarian non-liberal societies on earth at the moment. They clearly are having conversations with each other. You mentioned that the personal relationship within the leaders is, is quite strong, it's, it, it, it's quite friendly. Is there a reality, danger even, you might use the term, that some of these liberal concerns that many of us have might essentially be bypassed by the two countries coming together to share a rather different set of values. Uh, thank you. Uh, uh, what do you think? Thank you. Well, in many ways, as I said, uh, there is a convergence which is uh, which, uh, in terms of the discrediting or showing the flaws and, and what they see as the limitations, or maybe even hypocrisy of, or, uh, of Western liberal values, and include <coughs> also increasingly what uh, Russia and China would agree that there is there is also this uh, representation of these values as global, whereas uh, there, there there are different civilizations. Values are anchored in different civilizations. So that is the uh, the world worldview that Russian foreign policy establishment promotes. And that also resonates with what China is uh, doing through Confucius Institute and Confucius values. And, and then all these values anchored in the Belt and Road Initiative about 
formation. I, I forget the exact term. You know, the, the community of common a community of common destiny. Destiny, and then the win-win partnership, cooperation, connectivity, development, everything as beneficial to everyone. So how? So uh, and uh, and Russia, Russia has doesn't have that kind of global agenda, but Russia is also promoting. Within Central Asia, Russia is also promoting this kind of version of Eurasian Economic Union, which is its answer to the EU, and the EU is represented, and it's very easy to represent EU as a fragmented, disunited entity that doesn't really work. So, so Eurasian Economic Union as something based, and then Russia is also try, uh, and Russia is also trying to forge partnership uh, between cooperation between uh, what they call the the word is this coupling of Eurasian Economic Union and China's Silk Road Initiative. So, so again, I mean, in a broad sense, the support to community-based agenda, uh, traditional family values, anti-gay legislation as something that, un I mean, the you know, gay rights as some represent as something that undermines family values and uh, the fabric of society. So there is convergence between uh, between both. And there is also the emphasis... To be fair, I think that anti-gay agenda is more Russian than Chinese. Uh, yes, uh, I said correct, yes. And, and it's something that China hasn't particularly questioned no. Russia on it, and it no. has kind of let Russia, you know, promote its own agenda without countering it. Uh, but there, there is also the, the state sovereignty, the emphasis on state sovereignty and uh, non-interference in internal affairs. So at the level of rhetoric, uh, it is fine, but then there are contradictions in Russia's own agenda. So, so Russia talks about, you know, supports China's non-interference in state sovereignty and uh, upholding territorial integrity. But then we see Russia's actions in Crimea. I mean, of course, it's a uh, complex history. And Russia, in Russian imagination, Crimea was always part of Russia. But that's a violation of and its actions in, in Ukraine. Also, the Eurasian Economic Union, there's emphasis on sovereignty, but at the same time, there is also erosion of state sovereignty with Russia imposing its agenda. And something that China is not particularly happy with, so China is trying to steer its own course, but there is no direct confrontation. So there are differences between them, but there's no direct confrontation yet. And just one final point where I see a lot of convergence is that both states have this notion of strong leader and strong systems. So so the growing, you know, India-China relations, for example, is very complex. But it's also, there are very close ties, you know, between uh, Modi and Xi Jinping. So, and how uh, Modi also is represented within this framework as an example of a strong leader. Uh, also support to the kind of the, the cultural values, the Hindutva elements of, you know, that uh, there's also that tacit support to it. Also, leaders such as Erdogan and Filipino. Uh, so there's that that kind of strong leadership, and and contrast that with the lack of leadership that we see in the UK and the leadership. You know, so that's ah, well, that's a whole other other question that we uh, may not get to. And Hans, just to say this earlier this year. It was notable that one of the movements that seemed most to disturb the Chinese authority, leading to mass arrests, was not of young liberals or lawyers or human rights activists. They've mostly been locked up already, I, uh, I think. It was young Maoists, right, right, people right. actually advocating you know, Mao's policies and ideas and giving rights back to workers and all of, all of that, who were forming you know, their 19, 20, 21-year-olds wearing T-shirts at major universities in China. 
And by spring, pretty much all of them have been rounded up, locked away, or not answering phone calls. Does that suggest that China's own history is perhaps more frightening as a resource to the regime than the threat of the West? Yes, these are the, the Marxism study societies, um, which uh, some of them began at, at uh, Beira, Peking University, uh, and then students uh, took Marxism seriously and used that to critique the reform program, including Deng Xiaoping's reforms. Then they went out to unionize uh, in places like Shenzhen, uh, and they, some of them have disappeared. Um, and um, they are now being, some of them at least are being treated, students are now being treated to histories of the reform period because the assumption is they don't know what went before and how much better today is. So there's a lot of uh, resources for critique of what is going on in China, within China <coughs> itself. Um, and that is, I think one of the things that has changed in the last three, four decades is the emergence of a uh, higher education sector that is well-funded, well-supported, uh, and people are, especially in technology, of course, and you refer to the effect of some of that, but it happens in all kinds of other humanities, social science subjects as well. And these people are well-read, well-connected, well-traveled, they know the world, and they are thinking people. Um, and I think that is the sort of one of the comments I was trying to get across is don't think of this as a very simplistic authoritarian regime. There is a lot of debate going on within constraints, both more or less public and then within university dormitories, restaurants, bars, uh, banqueting, and so on. Um, I think everyone will be pretty yeah. good. Thank you so much for, for permission to just add to um, uh, what Hans just said, that um, I think that um, it is really important to realize that resources for criticism towards the government, of course, also include the Chinese tradition. That goes back yes. a little bit to your question. And I think that um, the vocabulary of justice and injustice is not specifically Western. And uh, you remember that Mao himself started reading the novel Outlaws of the Marsh when he was uh, a young lad and got uh, inspired, at least in part, by that on his uh, rather uh, extraordinary political journey one way or another. I think it's um, high time that we opened up the discussion here. We have plenty of hands already appearing. Do we have a microphone to go to our speakers? Right, so if we have our volunteer go up amongst the people, Da Chong Yipian, as we say in Chinese, and um, why don't we take... Um, Okay, the, the hand of, uh, yeah, that, yep, 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 at the back here, yes, go ahead. Hi, thank you all for your first paper. Uh, oh. Speak straight, yeah. yep, go for it. Um, I'm interested to hear what you feel the uh, views and desires are of China's <coughs> growing middle class mm. and their views on uh, increasingly authoritarian regime, um, <coughs> how China uh, and the CCP uh, need to adapt to how they want to impose uh, neo-totalitarianism in an age where there are so many hundreds of millions of middle-class people in China. Great, thank you for that. What I might do, actually, is just take a few questions and then bring them to our speakers, because if we have everyone answering everything, we will run out after about two questions, and that would be a shame. We want to get lots of voices, uh, voices in. Um, okay, we've got a very male set of hands. Not there's anything wrong with that. Happy to have those two, but we've got some others. Let's take the lady here. Why don't we do that? Sorry, I'll make you, make you work a bit here <laughs> as well. Just speak straight into the microphone, sorry. Um, yeah. So my, my, question, my, my question is that the world 
for a while to Western hegemonic power and with that comes uh, the cultural um, nuances that we're used to, um, with our, especially with the spread of technology. Yep. Um, and so my question is with the rise of China, how does China plan to counter that or spread that in terms of language or, or making people more Okay, very good. And the gentleman at the top is very keen to have his question taken, so we will not deprive him for a moment longer. Go ahead, sir. Hang on, hang on. Get your uh, get your microphone towards you first. Yeah, but you're not yeah. speaking to the microphone, so we can't hear you. Okay, thanks um, very much for that point. Um, so there's three points there. Let's, let's move those around and we'll come back for another round in just a moment. I'll direct these questions if I, uh, uh, if I, if I may. Mm. <coughs> in terms of um, China's um, middle classes, um, I, just, I want to throw that back to you because obviously much of what's happening in Hong Kong, which is separate, is a middle class question uh, that initially was quite surprising to many people on the streets as to how wide the class range was. But it also relates to the contrast that people have made with the fact that middle class mainland China has not yet necessarily expressed great sympathy or empathy with what's been happening in, in Hong Kong. So what if I could sort of jam those two together and, and, and get a thought from you? I think that, um, yeah, that's a very uh, accurate observation. What's going on in Hong Kong is uh, does not wield any uh, or very much sympathy among the, the Chinese middle class, uh, even though that you know, um, the a lot of the what's going on in Hong Kong with the demonstrations uh, is, is, is not surprisingly censored so much. Um, uh, the um, it, it comes down to Hong Kong identity. I think at the end of the day, I think that uh, Hong Kong Hong Kongers when they they protest they. Um, they very much identify uh, with um, uh, the, what is the, uh, they view as Hong Kong core values. You know, the, uh, the defense of uh, the uh, the rule of law, <coughs> the, um, the freedom to speak, the freedom the freedom of expression, the freedom of assembly, and all of and all, the, all these uh, freedoms and rights that they've been they've learned to uh, to uh, they've been accustomed to uh, uh, all their lives, and. Um, and this is in strict, strict contrast with uh, what uh, what they view as what they don't have over in the mainland, and that reinforces what they understand as uh, what they 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 believe they are. So when they so pretty much when they protest, they are also exercising their own identity. Um, so um, 
and uh, when those who are who are, are protesting on the streets, <coughs> they uh, are very much uh, from the middle class, mm. and they uh, they 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 uh, don't they are uh, really um, um, yeah just don't. Yeah, no, no, that's, it's, it's a very good point. I wonder if I could combine two of those questions back to you, Eva, because it seems to me that, on the one hand, the gentleman's question about sort of subtle authoritarianism, mm -hmm. I mean, the fact that China is a highly repressive state, but it's not North Korea in terms of how it deals with dis dissent is important. And the middle classes and their aspirations are actually a really important part of that. You deal with incredibly brave lawyers who risk their careers on a daily basis to say things the state doesn't like. There are an awful lot of lawyers in China who are doing very, very well, who work in other areas and are very happy with their emergent middle class lifestyle. So is the Chinese state in its own terms managing to balance this better than we sometimes realize? Yes, well, yes and no, I suppose. Um, uh, the, the, the people I deal with, the people I mostly talk to, they, of course, sometimes do refer to China as um, a, a Western North Korea. And uh, that's, of course, that reflects their perspective and experience. I think that on the, on the question of social control and, and whether the Chinese state is successful, well, I think that um, we do need to sort of look at um, how control works. And um, mm. if um, we compare with a 20th century uh, sort of totalitarian system, then uh, perhaps what we imagine is a kind of imposed graveyard silence uh, and uh, very uh, sort of perfect <coughs> censorship of mass communication. That, of course, is completely unthinkable in today's China, where, as, I w uh, as, as uh, some have put it, um, uh, 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 everybody has a microphone, everybody can use the social media. But what China does very successfully is um, it, for instance, employs huge numbers of social media influencers who are hired to support the party. Uh, and uh, do that in very sophisticated ways. And of course, nowadays it can also use algorithms to essentially reinforce uh, particular types of discourse that it wants to support. Um, it also, um, going beyond uh, media, it also uh, is very successful in uh, uh, employing a system of rewards and punishments that I suppose have a kind of historical resonance and that mean, for example, that if a commercial lawyer decides to take an interest in one of the people I tend to speak to and express themselves supportive on the social media or perhaps take on a case or perhaps make a donation, <coughs> they might hear from the security apparatus of the party state, and they might find that their secure middle-class existence is suddenly threatened. And um, uh, that can go, for instance, via their law firm, uh, their law firm boss, or via the uh, Bureau of Justice. Um, uh, it can lead to um, uh, soft threats that can become hard threats that can become repression, full-on repression, <coughs> if uh, such a lawyer were to consist to continue um, to show sympathy and support for uh, human rights causes. And that uh, type of system, I think, uh, is what allows uh, a, a more subtle repression mm. to work relatively well. But the danger, of course, uh, is uh, from the perspective of the party state that um, it can never be sure about how much support it actually has 
and how much opposition there might be, precisely because it is so busy trying to suppress and uh, manipulate public discourse um, to, uh, to get, uh, to sort of um, uh, screen out um, uh, potential criticism. And to the lady's question about China being able to tell its own story and find a kind of sort of counter-narrative, I mean, Hans, you wrote in your most recent book about the way in which during World War II, Madame Chiang Kai-shek, amongst others, uh, went and told a story, a narrative about China's brave fight against the Japanese to the Americans, which at least in the short term may have had some useful propaganda effects. Is there and can there be a story about China today that China can produce that will have some sort of countering effect to uh, what they perceive rightly or wrongly, as a narrative that doesn't play to their strengths? Um, I think the answer depends on what audience you have in mind. And I think the story, as it is the story of China, the story that China, China's leaders are telling about China's right, has resonance domestically. And that sort of relates to the question that was asked about the middle class. I think many Chinese are actually very proud of their country, and we see it in many places. And uh, in a way that sort of Western media reporters, how weird is that? Is it that they are so 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 proud of this? Um, but they are proud of of all kinds of <coughs> things. Um, you know, I started traveling in China three decades ago, and I can see why they're proud. The living standards are much better. There's education. The children are taken care of. Uh, health uh, care is much much better. Um, if 20 years ago Chinese students here were very happy to go to a local doctor, now they fly back because medical care is better. Um, so, and that's one of, sort of, one of the really interesting changes. Uh, they, tr they trust their own medical care better than we do, uh, than, than ours, uh, even our own NHS. So, and I think that relates also to that question about sort of the dignity of the middle classes and their sense of dignity. But I think there is a flip side to that. Because there is something highly undignified to a highly educated middle class being told what to say and think in public. And I think there's a lot of resistance to that uh, as well. And I've, if I can make, but I think we sort of need to take this a step further in this way. We, I think we do live in a time of very serious disruption, geopolitically, internationally. That is a dis disruption that has many causes, not just in China, not just in Russia. It's in many ways a disruption that began here in Britain with Brexit and then was escalated in the United States. Uh, and there's been sort of lots of warfare going on. And so when, when I talk to my Chinese colleagues, and they, uh, you, you, this, these are not great examples of virtuous conduct. Um, <laughs> and you know, I, I, have, I can't disagree with that. So I think we, we are moving away from, an from a world that emerged out of the Second World War into something new. And that's a very scary process. And we all need to think about what that is going to mean for all of us. And the reality is going to be, China is going to be a very powerful country. Uh, <coughs> and we're going to have to adjust to that. Thank you, uh, Hans. And let's take a few more questions. Let's look a bit more at this side of the room. Do we have any hands here? Yes, we do. Uh, OK, uh, let's take the gentleman in the green sweater and then the gentleman back there in the gilet. Yeah, you first, sir. Um, I think you said that uh, we will expect China to become very powerful, perhaps in a similar manner to which the United States has recently and maybe Britain before. Hmm. Do you have any thoughts about whether Chinese leadership and maybe Chinese people have some kind of vision of the impact they would like to have on the world? 
where no. this was going in one term, so externally rather than internally. Yes. Okay, very thanks very much for that question. I think the gentleman in the black chalet there was going to ask a question. Hello, I'm um, from Taiwan. And um, um, actually, as um, Chinese, China is becoming more and more powerful, like, what do you think China will, like, uh, Taiwan will, what Taiwan will face in the future? Like, especially uh, next year, we are going to have a presidential <coughs> election uh, next year. So Taiwan, thank you very much. That's a great question. Is there anyone from China here who have defined that term who'd like to ask a question? Yeah, one at the back there. Let's have red uh, red sweater. Thanks for. I think we could combine you know, s s sneaky practice. They're getting two questions in at once, but uh, well done. Um, let's uh, let's again, bearing in mind time is beginning to march on us. Ask. I'm going to pick some victims to uh, address these various questions. In terms of leadership and vision and external facing, I mean, partner, do you see not just the strategic, but actually a kind of vision on the Chinese side in terms of what they actually want to do, you know, once BRI and all these things are rolled out, is there actually a kind of game plan in terms of how they want the world to look? Uh, I could say from Central Asia, how the Central Asians, China's neighbors, how sure. they okay. see it, and, and also partly how Russia sees it. And Russia is very, its position is quite ambiguous as far as the international, uh, on the international arena, <coughs> there is the solidarity, partnership, but mm. Russia's Far East, uh, there's considerable anxieties in parts of Siberia and Russian Far East about China's growing role, and lots of territories along the border in the Russian Far East. Some hundred years ago, these were parts of Russia, uh, Russian Empire, and in 1858-59, the border demarcation, they, which was very beneficial to Russia, the territories were taken over. So in Chinese imagination, these are Chinese territories then. And also local people in, uh, uh, you know, in, in the region say that the Chinese have historical memories about the resources, the vegetation, the trees, and the, the what to find where, and they are 
collecting these and taking them back. So, so there is this image of China as mainly interested in resources and uh, the so, so, in other words, it's so a vision of power rather than ideology, and, and not ideology. And, and in Central Asia, yes, there is the, the, the but even the Chinese development model, there's appreciation, there's this. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. praise for that, but it's something seen as something that doesn't quite apply to uh, to the region and also Chinese culture and language. It's very limited, small number of people who have studied in China, but it doesn't have a larger uh, appeal. Mm -hmm. uh, thank you. Thanks so much. Agnes, I want to combine those two questions about Hong Kong. In a sense, it seems to me mm -hmm. the core is something that has been a point of dispute between what the Chinese government these days is saying and what the wider world is saying. The Chinese government, including actually various uh, officials, have been saying that essentially once Hong Kong returned in 1997 to Chinese sovereignty, actually Chinese sovereign law becomes ultimately overarching. And others say no, the 1984 treaty was an international treaty, it's embedded in international law, it is not open to any of the signatories simply to change it at will. As a very well-trained lawyer, could you tell us what's the right answer? <laughs> So yeah, that's very much China's rhetoric that uh, the, the, after the signing, of, after 1997, the, uh, the Sino-British Joint Declaration is no longer valid. It's, you know, that, that was uh, a document of the past. But uh, uh, that's not right, <laughs> because it's, uh, it's still legally binding. It's, uh, it's, uh, it, it, uh, as an international treaty, it followed all the procedures uh, followed uh, in respect to registering a, a treaty. And, and still is with the United Nations today. Um, the um, so that's um, that so the the the, the, the Sino-British Joint Declaration is uh, still very much valid today, uh, contrary to what China says. Um, and uh, uh, I just want to make can I address yeah, the point uh, the lady about the anti-mask law and indeed because in Hong Kong we still have uh, the common law. And a lot of <coughs> laws from uh, back in the colonial days, including the uh, the uh, the law which uh, the uh, which uh, the chief executive recently invoked emergency powers uh, in order to pass uh, this anti-mask law. That was very much a law from the colonial days uh, in the 1960s, partly in, uh, to put down uh, the riots in 1967 in Hong Kong. So a series of colonial uh, laws were put down uh, were drafted. Um, uh, to uh, deal with that uh, uh, at the time. And, uh, and, and uh, since uh, uh, the 1960s, um, we've had the, the Sino-British Joint Declaration in 84, and then that was reflected in uh, the Basic Law in 1997. And those, those, um, the Sino-British Joint Declaration in the Basic Law reflects uh, international human rights law, um, including the International Covenant of Cultural and Political Rights, that was a negotiation point between the British and the Chinese at the time to actually put uh, Hong Kongers at minds at ease who were really frightened about uh, Tiananmen and what the fate of Hong Kong would be post-Tiananmen. So, uh, that, uh, so the ICCPR was, be was uh, reflected in the Sino-British Joint Declaration and basic law. And uh, so that's why Hong Kongers today enjoy the freedom of uh, speech and, uh, and political assembly and all these on all these things that we have today and what they hold on to, but uh, were not uh, reflected in those laws in the 1960s. Um, so yeah, that's why there is a disparity.
Uh, thank you very much indeed, Agnes. And I think uh, for a fee, no, Agnes will write that all down for you so you have all of the, the detail. But I think you've got a very comprehensive uh, account there of the specific legal position on that very, very important uh, question, which is, is great to, uh, to have. As we begin to wind up, I'm going to ask for two brief comments from my other two speakers on the Taiwan question, starting with uh, Eva. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, I mean, I think that um, you just <coughs> talked about Hong Kong, and I think that I suppose from the perspective of uh, the Chinese party state, of course, um, uh, um, just as Hong Kong is China's Hong Kong, so also Taiwan is, is referred to as China's Taiwan, but that doesn't um, reflect the political or, from my perspective, um, from my personal perspective, the international law realities. Um, but um, that means that um, there's a particular interest in trying to influence the political process uh, in, uh, in Taiwan. And uh, the influencing techniques, I think, have been the kind of manipulation that we've seen other systems uh, use by, by trying to sort of uh, spread disinformation, etc. And I think that um, from the Chinese perspective, perhaps, I mean, from the Chinese government perspective, perhaps um, it would be sufficient uh, for them to undermine uh, the democratic process uh, in Taiwan to mm. a degree where sort of democracy would be allowed <coughs> to continue in, in, in sort of nominally, but uh, they would be more in control, exercising more control than they already have in, in economic terms, etc. Um, uh, I'm not sure if that uh, would be the kind of end game, um, or if uh, the, there is a further ambition to bring China back, uh, Taiwan back into China. I would say, um, on That's the briefly. right side, very briefly, that uh, perhaps we need to think more about um, this concept, this 20th century concept of militant democracy, of a democracy that um, finds new ways of countering these strategies. And so I wouldn't be completely pessimistic. Thanks. And uh, you go to Taiwan often, I know, Hans, a brief, brief thought, perhaps, to finish us off on Yes, yes, just very briefly. I mean, I think Xi Jinping is much more assertive of Taiwan. He talks about reunification within a certain period. Uh, I have sort of contradictory feelings. I mean, we're very sympathetic to Taiwan, and Taiwan has, has done very, very good things for Chinese studies, for instance, in Europe. And we're very grateful <coughs> for that. Um, but I think the contradiction here for China is that on the one hand, and this sort of goes to all the questions, it is very concerned about its security, which is why it is so assertive, uh, establishing a navy, naval power. At the same time, it wants that r the rise of China to be peaceful. It would be the first peaceful rise in history. It would be a great achievement. But I think the Chinese leadership is well aware of the negative examples of countries that have disturbed the global order, I'm talking about Japan and Germany, and therefore came to real damage. They are aware of those examples. Now, how Beijing is going to reconcile securing its borders, which means some control over Taiwan, over Hong Kong, over the South China Seas, with these ideas of peaceful rise, I'm sure they'll be talking about it, thinking about it. It's not going to be an easy task. And just, just keep in mind that very few empires have risen peacefully. Not the Dutch, not the English, not the Americans, not the Germans, not the Japanese. So there's going to be trouble. I think we should be ready for that. I think you've given us the starting point for the next Cambridge Festival of Ideas there, <laughs> Hans. And we could have gone on even today, I'm sure, for many more hours with so many different aspects of this fascinating society to discuss. But time has defeated us. So with our panel, Hans van der Ven, Eva Pils, Deva, uh, Dave, uh, sorry, <laughs> losing that, Bhavna Dave, and Agnes Chong, could we please have a huge round of applause?
Thank you for joining us here tonight. I hope you enjoy the rest of the festival.